Take your Bible and turn to Numbers chapter 13. So we continue with Numbers chapters 13 and 14. We've just finished 11 and 12 where the grumbling has kind of reached a new level. The people complaining about the food, the people complaining about the lack of the food they want, and it's even spread into leadership with Miriam and Aaron. In chapter 12, you had the most southern thing ever, uh, where a complaint against Moses was begun by taking a shot at his wife out of the blue, most spectacular um, kind of bushwhack, and it's pretty fantastic. Chapter 13, this is God's Word. We're going to start in verse 17. Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev, into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab, near Lebo-Hamath. They went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, 
The land, though, through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Let's pray. Uh, O Lord, we ask humbly that you would send your spirit, that we would hear from your word, that we would believe it for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the great joys of in-depth Bible study, of reading the Old Testament kind of intentionally and aggressively, is really to see how much people don't really change. I mean, the circumstances change, but the people don't really I mentioned it even in the kind of intro to the reading. I love in the previous chapter, chapter 12, how it reads really like a section of Gone with the Wind, maybe with a slightly different attire and slightly different reasoning, but it's that same kind of passive-aggressive. We can't quite be in conflict directly to somebody's face. It has to be done behind their back with the insults thinly veiled, in the guise of civility. Chapter 13, the problem immediately becomes that if people don't really change, there's a reality that in some fashion, it's probably talking about behaviors that we have and sometimes talking about the very way in which we behave. Certainly, the starting point is very similar. See, the foundation for this entire chapter is the promises of God. God has promised to His people that He would do something special. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. This is where this chapter begins. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This wonderful promise by God, an unqualified blessing that God would bless Abraham. He would bless his children. He would bless the nation that would come from them. He would bless his people. Again, I love that as a starting point where it comes time to have any conversation about the Bible and any conversation about understanding who we are and who God is. God has no less promised to bless His people. That's really kind of the the foundational principle that we bring to us when we come to any interaction with God. He's told us that He loved us before the foundation of the world. 
He loved us when our only existence was in His mind. He had not yet formed us. He loved us, Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, He loved us. And even after we've been made new, He loves us and will love us into all eternity. He loves His people. Only now, the promise has changed as to what that blessing looks like. Now it's no longer a geographical feature. It's not a take us out to the top of a hill and look and see, hey, look, the land that way and that way and that way and that way. It'll all be yours. It's been increased, in fact, actually. It's Jesus' first sermon to say, my people, they don't just inherit a small piece of the land where they can see. They inherit the entirety of creation. It'll all belong to them, all of it, everything. This will be done away with with fire, but a, a new earth, a new created order will be made, and the entirety of it will belong to my people. That's why you mourn now. That's why you have a poor spirit now, why you have meekness now, why you endure through persecution now, because in the end, you inherit the entire created order. But even before that inheritance, even before the life to come, we have all of the blessings and goodnesses of God in this life. Peace that passes all understanding, joy in the face of tremendous sadness, courage in the face of terror, love even for our enemies, holiness in an unholy culture. These good gifts from God that He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us, that He's always with us even to the end of the age. These good promises function kind of as as the foundation through which we look at the world, or they should at least. It's really, honestly, very much like my glasses. I can read my Bible without them. Ooh, it is really hard though, <laughs> right? The words kind of move, they blur, they're definitely not in focus. But once these little magic pieces of glass or plastic, whatever they are, go on my eyes, everything's brought into clarity. We can look at the world around us and we can understand it in some sense and it makes a little bit of sense. We can make a little bit of a guess of it. But the second that we begin to view it through God's promises, it brings everything into clarity everything into focus. You see, that's actually really the problem the Israelites are going to have in chapter 13, is that they're going to begin, continue, and they've already been doing this in some fashion, but in a new way, they're going to evaluate the created order without thinking about God's promises. They're going to evaluate the land around them by what they see, instead of what they hear. All right, what they've heard is that God is going to give them a land. In fact, actually, this specific land. What they've already heard is him tell them he's going to take them out of Egypt and he's going to plant them in that soil. What they've already heard is God say he would do this. But what they see doesn't line up. And so they're presented with this kind of conundrum, this challenge, which will I believe? Will I believe my eyes or will I believe my ears? 
And the sad reality is for most of us, honestly, if you're going to answer that question, which are we all going to choose by nature? We're going to choose our eyes. It's what we do. It's how we're made. It's our primary sense for evaluating the world. God has given His promises, but we evaluate them incorrectly. Chapter 13, God initiates it. Verse 1, he has brought God, his people out of, uh, away from Mount Sinai. He's brought them to Kadesh, to the uh, edge of the promised land. This is preparing for mass invasion, where they would invade the land that we now know as Israel, uh, and then take over all of the land that God has promised. Uh, he, I think generously, interestingly, he doesn't demand blind faith from them. He could have. I mean, he would have been absolutely within his right to say, Load up all of your soldiers, get them into ranks, we're going marching in. He could do that. But interestingly, he doesn't. Instead, he sends a a scouting mission, has Moses send a scouting mission, and scouting mission of the chief of men. These are not your ordinary kind of average Joes. These are leaders. These are men excellent in their own right. They've been brought up and placed in positions of authority. These are the kind of lesser rulers in the land. Again, maybe a kind of misunderstanding that some of us have from when we learned this back on the flannel graph in Sunday school 700 years ago. Right? Joshua and Caleb are not ordinary fellas. These men are the best of the best. In fact, all of them are. These are the men that should know the promises of God. These are the men that should be equipped to lead the people of God. And so, verse 17, Moses sends them out. And I find this to be such an intriguing thing because what we're really beginning to see kind of working in the text here, God has already promised, and He is going to keep His promise. That's never going to change. But in His mystery, in His mercy, God often uses our actions to bring about the fulfillment of of His promises. God often uses our actions to bring about the fulfillment of His promises. He's promised them the land. He's going to give it to them. That, again, not really up for negotiation. But what He's doing is going to be using Israel to accomplish that. You guys go in and scout out the land You take with you a bunch of the fruit so the people can see the spoils. The land is good. Pay attention to any trees. That's going to impact how your defenses are. Pay attention to how big the cities are. That'll give you an idea of how big their armies are. Pay attention to what type of walls they have. We have a good guess. Most of these cities have walls that are roughly 20 to 30 feet tall and 15 feet deep. That is not an insignificant wall. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to where the cities are. Pay attention to who's there. Why? Because God's going to go before you, but you're going to go with Him and fight. He's going to keep His promise to give you the land, Israel. But you've got to work as part of it. He's going to use your actions to accomplish it. This is really, honestly, kind of a a, a generosity if you stop and think about it. Our God is so powerful, He doesn't need us. I mean, He could at any given moment, you kind of snap His fingers, poof, and the whole thing's solved. 
right? I mean, he could have zapped the land and mysteriously all of the inhabitants could have just keeled over dead. He could have done that. Would have been fine. He could have made a giant Tyrannosaurus to go through and eat them all. He could have done that. I don't know why he would have, but he could have. Would have been awesome. I guess not for the people who died that way. But instead, what he does is he uses his people as part of it to increase their faith, to to showcase to them what he's doing, to teach them to believe, to give them a, a greater amount of data to prove that he's kept his promises to show how he's never left them. He uses the process as part of the promise. This is actually where Israel begins to struggle. They want him to do all of the work with them doing nothing. In fact, the second they have to do anything, they get kind of hung up on it. (laughs) That whole inconvenient thing of walking they've been complaining about. Eating they've been complaining about. Two of the really hard things in life, walking and eating. But now, actually, as they prepare to go to war, just having the information overwhelms them. And they mistake and forget that God often uses our actions to bring about the fulfillment of His promises. The interesting thing, again, this is the beauty of Scripture. God never changes, and so His truth is still true for us. And I would say, honestly, friends, this is no less true today. Oftentimes, God uses His people, He uses us to bring about the fulfillment of His promises He's promised to never leave you and never forsake you. Yet oftentimes, when we hit dark times, the first thing we do is stop reading the Word and stop going to church, and it feels like He's left us. Well, yeah! (laughs) The place where you would hear His voice, you've stopped listening. It's like He stopped talking to me, and it's because you've got your ears plugged, friend. Of course you have a hard time. You're like that toddler that doesn't want to hear mom that's got their fingers in their ears going la, 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 and wondering why we don't hear from the Lord. He's promised to use certain means to to bless us and to build us up and to strengthen us. He's promised to use His Word. He's promised to use prayer. He's promised to use the sacraments. He's promised to use His people, and yet sometimes we neglect those and then wonder why we don't grow. One's my favorite conversation where people are like, I just don't feel like I'm growing. Oh, okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. Why aren't you growing? Well, I'm not doing anything. In fact, all I do is spend time with the world, consuming massive amounts of the devil, and I don't understand why I'm not growing. I might have a guess at that, friend. I might have an idea. You see, again, the mistake here is that so many of us, we think that faith is that some sort of kind of passive belief instead of understanding that faith is active work. It's active work, and we understand this kind of inherently in some sense with our marriages. I can tell my wife that I love her as many times as I want, but if I'm cruel to her and beat her and treat her harshly, do my words mean anything? No, of course not. I don't love her. I'm being hateful toward her. And I have to tell her I love her and then work at it also to care for her, to watch out for her, 
We tell ourselves and each other that we love God and we trust God and we believe God, but we have to work at it, friends. Use those good gifts that God has given. The interesting thing is that when we actually do that, when we begin to put our, our, kind of, our, our energies and our efforts into being a part of God's promises, the interesting thing is we get to see the same thing that they get to see. That our God is better to us. He's doing greater good than even what we can understand. Ephesians 3 talks about it's beyond what we can even imagine, which I really marvel at because my imagination is pretty big. And yet God's goodness is greater. I love that it, it explains that here. The spies go into the land. It notes, oh, by the way, it's grape season. Cool. While they're traveling along, they, they find a, a vineyard that has clusters of grapes so large that one person can't carry them by themselves. I'm not a farmer. I don't do vineyards. I, I imagine that's pretty special, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's one of those types of things you see at the county fair, and you're like, really? I didn't know they grew that big, right? The ones you see on the internet where it's a pumpkin the size of a small house or a shed, and you're like, really? That's a real thing? I thought that was fake. They find pomegranates. Again, a special note, the land is so filled with abundance that you have special fruit growing and growing in abundance in the land. In fact, actually, it's such a rich land that it's able to support a very large population. This is, again, it's such an interesting thing. Israel misses the point. The spies come home and they're like, we can't do it. There's too many people. The cities are too big. They're too tall. We can't do it. An interesting thing, what are they doing? They're explaining, this is a land so filled with natural resources that it can support a massive population. What they're saying is the land is so rich, we can't invade it. We can't take it over. They have too much money. They're too blessed. We can't do it. You see, what's happening is they're not viewing it through the the lens of God's promises. They're not viewing it through the lens of faith. And what do they see? They see a problem instead of seeing God's provision. He's treating them with greater kindness than even they understand. He's treating them with greater mercy, with greater favor. And again, friends, this is no less the case for us. That if we begin to view the world through our gospel glasses of God's promises, if we begin to intentionally contemplate how he takes care of us and how he watches over us, if we begin to intentionally think about that, the amazing thing is that we begin to see his provision in ways that we never would have guessed things that we would never have thought he was doing suddenly become clear and you can say, oh, he was with me even there in a way I didn't understand. Oh, he was doing this thing that was so good and I I never would have thought of that. I never would have understood that. It gives us the new vision that helps us understand how generous he's being to us. Again, this doesn't 
kind of take us, make us blind to the reality of the difficulties. It doesn't create a church context where we can't talk about difficult things. In fact, actually, it does the opposite. It gives us the freedom to talk about all of the hard things and to talk about how hard they actually are, but to talk about how God is with us even in the midst of them. When we're upset or anxious or sad or angry or embarrassed or ashamed or hopeless, or even lost. We can talk about that because it's viewed correctly through the lens of God's promises. You see, that's actually kind of what happens kind of in the climax of chapter 13 here. They begin to survey the lay of the land. They see how rich it is, how great it is, and as people that are huge, they've been eating well. And the spies are like, yeah, we can't do it. That's too much. Sorry, I'm out. And Caleb and Joshua are like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah, absolutely, we can do this. Let's go right now. Load up. Let's go. God's promised. He'll do this. God is taking care of us. He's with us. God will fight. We don't have to worry about it. These are the guys that literally watched the Lord use the ocean to eat the largest army on earth at the time. I don't think they have anything to worry about. No, nothing to be nervous about. If the ocean will eat our enemies, we're fine, right? But yet, rather than dwelling on the person of God, they begin to be overwhelmed by the difficulties. They begin to be overwhelmed by how scary the people are. They begin to trust their eyes instead of their ears. What happens, again, it reads just like kind of a modern-day novel. It's almost like a sociological kind of explanation of our current cultural um, situation. When When the people of God lose confidence in God's promises, chapter 14 shows us a number of kind of byproducts that follow. Chapter 14, and again, this is the explanation of what happens when a people lose trust in God's promises. Verses 1 and 2, what happens? Anxiety and stress. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, Would that we have died in Egypt! I'm like, really? I'd rather die with my boots on in combat, but that's just me. I'd rather not die a slave personally, but okay, you do you, I guess. Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Amazing. The anxiety and stress that's produced as a byproduct of not understanding, being grounded in God's good care for his people. Next, verse 3, they begin to doubt God's good motives. I love this one. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They doubt his goodness. They doubt God's motives. The one who cannot lie has already literally told them what his motives are. I love you and I will bless you. And they begin to doubt his motives. Verse 4, they begin to doubt his provision. They doubt Moses. 
Verse 10, their doubt then begins to manifest in greater sins. The congregation set to stone Moses and Aaron with stones. This is an amazing statement if you think about it. Why are they getting ready to stone Moses and Aaron? Because 10 guys came back and said the land is so rich and filled with tall people and we're not sure we can beat them. And they went so over the top, they they got so inside, kind of captured by the me monster that they're like, hey, let's 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 go murder somebody. Let's go murder the guy who brought us out of slavery. Let's go murder the guy who's helped kind of accomplish miraculous food for the last year and a half. Let's go murder the guy who's led us here because that seems like a really good plan. And I, I love how you begin to see kind of the progressive work in it. Not viewing God's world through his good graces, through his good gospel, through his good promise, it produces this kind of anxious living. It produces a stress that kind of implodes in on itself. For those that don't read in these things, or if you're an older person in the room, this is an epidemic amongst younger people. Our millennials and our next generation, and whatever they're called, there's about 17 different names, might just call them the anxious generation. Right? They're, they're a generation that's being defined culturally and personally defined by their anxiety. Yeah, we live in a world that's turbulent, that's not being grounded in God's promises. The byproduct of that is that we then begin to question God's goodness toward us. I find myself increasingly surprised by how much I have to argue for this in counseling. Because we live in a world that is so narcissistic and a culture that that values my own opinion so highly, whenever God's opinion doesn't line up with my opinion, I have to question either his competency as God or I have to question his goodness for me. Anytime I run into something that makes me unhappy, anything that doesn't line up with what I think should be right and wrong or the way that things should be done, I question His goodness. I question His care. which then kind of manifests in a giant question about the Scriptures. Does he actually know what he's talking about? Had he told us, has he told us the truth? Well, there's just some parts in there I guess I just won't believe. And while thankfully for most of us it doesn't lead us into murder, thankfully premeditated murder, praise God for that, It does lead us into darker deeds. You see, friends, this is one of those types of sins that doesn't stay confined. It doesn't, you know, kind of stay within the boundaries of where it's laid out. A lack of trust in God's promises and God's good 
love and mercy is one of those things that is like a poisonous aquifer, right? It's, you poison the well and it begins to seep out into the entirety of the land. It doesn't just poison that one little bit, it begins to poison everything around it. It stains it all. And the great reality is, though we would like to say, hey, you know what, I don't struggle with that, but I know someone that does. Honestly, part of that is because we're being a bit dishonest with ourselves. This is a thing that we all struggle with. This is not, you know, praise God, our, our, our theological tradition, there are many strengths that we have. Praise God, our theological tradition, there are many things that we've been trained well at, and praise God for that. The great reality is, kind of from our cultural moment, this is not something we tend to excel at. To view all of the difficult things in my life through the lens of God has promised me. Doesn't mean I won't work, doesn't mean I won't hurt, but God has promised. It's why we don't understand traditionally the end of this chapter. Verse 11, the Lord intervenes. <laughs> Actually, verse 10, he shows up in the glory cloud. That would have been terrifying in its own right. The glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting is in the middle of the camp. You have all of the tribes arrayed around them, and God's glory descends in the middle. This is probably in the form of like pillar of fire, tornado of fire, just some residential glory in a way that would be, and I mean this seriously, wholly terrifying. And he makes what in verses 11 and 12 is a terrifying statement. How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. So here Moses is going to talk to God and God's like, yeah, I'm done with these people. I'm just going to kill them all and start over. I'll make you a new nation, Moses. It'll be great. Right, the, the, the destruction of unbelievers is what he's referring to here that don't know the Lord. Right, our, our culture likes to teach the idea that believing in a different religion or not believing in Christ is a morally neutral thing. For years, we've been saying, really since the late 80s, our nation has been very aggressive in saying that as long as you believe in something and believe in it hard enough, you'll be Okay. And the reality is that that is an absolute, just big, fat lie. That's the kind of lie that we tell ourselves to be able to fall asleep every night. But it's a lie that doesn't hold in hospice. It's a lie that doesn't hold in a hospital. It's a lie that we know is a lie, but yet we continue to tell. And the reason why is because if sin is real, God's judgment is real. We don't understand the significance of it because we, we think ingratitude is, is a good thing because I'm smarter than God. <laughs> we don't understand the end of the chapter, verses 20 and following after. We're going to have a moment of goodness here in between I'm come back to. Where God promises that, and this is what we read in Psalm 95, what we read in Hebrews 3 and 4, God promises that none of the people who are 20 and older will ever make it to see the promised land. 
He's going to take them from Kadesh back down into the desert, at which point they're going to wander around in circles until all of them die. And then he's going to take Caleb and Joshua and the new nation and Moses to the very edge of the promised land. Moses is going to die, and then Caleb and Joshua are going to take everybody in. Everyone dies. Everyone dies, except for Caleb and Joshua. His judgment, because sin has consequences. We don't like to talk about that. We don't like to live in a world that has consequences. And in fact, actually, we have a a political system that currently is trying to do absolutely everything they can to separate action from consequence. Take a loan, don't pay it back. Become a citizen, don't, doesn't matter. Vote, don't vote, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do, nothing. There's no cause and effect anymore is what we're trying to get to. And our God, unfortunately, sees their very big consequence of cause and effect. Sin has a consequence, and the consequence is destruction. And friends, there's two choices. There's either you bear that mark yourself, you bear that destruction yourself, you bear that wrath yourself, or you have Christ bear it for you. Those are the two choices. Either you bear the consequences of your evil actions where you have offended a perfectly holy God, a perfectly righteous God, a perfectly just God, a perfectly creative and powerful God in his destruction. You either offend him and deal with that or you offend him and let Christ deal for that. Those are the two choices. One of which we get to see laid out here with an entire nation that perishes in the wilderness objects of God's wrath, they become the the stereotype used throughout the entire New Testament of what an unbeliever looks like. That's why Hebrews 3 and 4 handle them the way they do. They're a people that see all of the things that God does and then never believe. And so they're treated as the portraits of His wrath The alternative is what the author of Hebrews is laying out to say that instead, believe in Christ. Christ is better. He is the one who has satisfied God's wrath on your behalf. And if you have that redemption, if you have God's Spirit living within you, if you have this transformative grace, you have the ability to live differently. You have the the ability to live a life that is unbelievable in what God is doing. I think Moses' response in 13 through 19 is one of the most shocking parts of the entirety of the Old Testament. Remember, chapter 11, Moses was complaining to God so aggressively, he said, if they're going to behave like this, just kill me now. Well, I'm done with these people, just kill me now. In chapter 14, God's like, you know what, that's a good idea. I think I'm going to kill him now. I'm going to listen to you. You had a good idea. I'm going to follow your idea. I'll kill them all, and I'll make you a new nation. And honestly, if any of us had been in that situation, most likely, what would the temptation to be like? Sure. I like it. It's a good idea. What does Moses do instead, though? Friends, this is what is what's called Mercy. Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, then the Egyptians will hear of it, 
For you brought up this people in your might from among them. They will tell the inhabitants of the land. They heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, kill all of them, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What mercy. What mercy. To go to the Lord and to plead on their behalf, and and the Lord hears and actually saves them. Doesn't kill them right away until verse 39. They decide to go to war without God, and he lets them go, and then they all die. Not all, but many of them. You see, friends, our God has not changed slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He does not clear the guilty, but he does show love. I don't know what all of your circumstances are. Many of them are public, some of them are private. But friends, he has not stopped loving you. And you have the option to trust that you know better than God, to trust your eyes and to evaluate what you see, or you have the option to listen to your ears, to believe what Christ has said, that on the cross the wrath of God was finished, and the only thing there is is affection for his people. May it be that our lives would be defined by a belief in those good promises. For Christ's sake, amen. Father, we do pray, O Lord, that you would help us in our unbelief. We hate it. Please change it. Amen and amen.